It's Monday, March 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Attorney General William Barr's summary of special counsel Robert Mueller's report is out, and it did not find evidence that President Donald Trump's campaign conspired or coordinated with Russia to influence the 2016 election. But it also did not make a conclusion on whether Trump obstructed justice. The president was very happy and declared it a complete and total exoneration. While this is a victory for the president, the fight still continues as Democrats are demanding that the full report be made public. I'll break down what we know so far. Next, you've heard of genetically modified foods. We now have the first gene-edited food being served in the Midwest, but no one knows exactly where just yet. A product known as Kalino oil, which was made from gene-edited soybeans to have fewer saturated fats and zero trans fats, is being served at some Midwestern restaurants. Megan Multani, science reporter at Wired, joins us for how this gene-edited soybean came to be. Finally, we have been told for years to watch what we post on social media to protect your privacy and your data. Now, posting suspect behavior could make your insurance more expensive. Insurers are likely to add social media to the data they review before issuing policies. Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for why it might not be a good idea to post pics from your latest rock climbing adventure or even happy hour. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. After a long investigation, after so many people have been so badly hurt, after not looking at the other side, where a lot of bad things happened, a lot of horrible things happened, a lot of very bad things happened for our country, it was just announced there was no collusion with Russia. Well, after waiting on pins and needles all weekend, the Attorney General William Barr released a four-page summary of the special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian collusion with the Trump campaign and to obstruction of justice. The top headline is that special counsel Robert Mueller found no collusion with the president and Russia or his associates and also on obstruction of justice. He said that this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime but it also does not exonerate him. Robert Mueller's report is broken up into two main parts. The first, the Russians' interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and the second part is obstruction of justice. As far as the investigation into Russian interference, there was two parts there as well. The first involved attempts by Russian organization, the Internet Research Agency, to conduct disinformation and social media operations. They found that not any U.S. person or Trump campaign official or associate conspired or knowingly coordinated with the IRA in its efforts to spread disinformation on social media. The second part was efforts from the Russian troll farm, as we called them. They were GRU agents who were tasked with hacking operations designed to gather and disseminate information to influence their campaign. This has to do with emails obtained from the Clinton campaign, Democratic Party organizations, and they also found that no one in the Trump campaign or anybody associated with it conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in those efforts. The second main part is obstruction of justice. From the letter that Barr submitted to Congress and the Mueller report after making a, quote, thorough factual investigation, unquote, into these matters, the special counsel considered whether to evaluate conduct under department standards, governing prosecution and declining decisions, but ultimately determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. They said that while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime with regards to obstruction of justice, it also does not exonerate him. And that's going to be an important part 
that's going to lead us for discussion for the rest of the week. Why did the Mueller report not fully exonerate him? The president, for his part, has said he has been fully exonerated, fully vindicated from this. Let's hear what the president had to say after news that William Barr had released his four-page summary. It was a complete and total exoneration. It's a shame that our country had to go through this. To be honest, it's a shame that your president has had to go through this for before I even got elected. It began. And it began illegally. And hopefully somebody's going to look at the other side. This was an illegal takedown that failed. And hopefully somebody's going to be looking at the other side. Let's not forget what came out of the Mueller probe. They have indicted, convicted, or gotten guilty pleas from 34 people and three companies, including top advisors to the president, Russian spies and hackers with ties to the Kremlin. The charges range from everything from interfering in the 2016 election, hacking emails, to lying to Congress, tampering with witnesses. We have the Russian troll farm that was charged. We have Paul Manafort. Obviously, we know all of his crimes. He's been sentenced to seven and a half years in prison for financial crimes. We have Trump confidant Roger Stone charged with lying to Congress. We have former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. He pled guilty to lying to investigators. We have President Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. He pleaded guilty to tax and bank charges, campaign finance violations, and lying to Congress. All of this stemmed out of the Mueller report. So there's a lot of things that did happen there. And just more reactions from top Republican lawmakers. Senate Judiciary Chair Lindsey Graham, one of the president's biggest supporters, said it's a bad day for those hoping the Mueller investigation would take President Trump down. Now it's time to move on and govern the country. House Judiciary Chair Gerald Nadler said that special counsel Mueller clearly and explicitly is not exonerating the president. There must be full transparency. And this is what you're going to hear a lot about. Democratic leaders Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, they also said that Attorney General Barr's letter raises as many questions as it answers. And that given Mr. Barr's public record of bias against the special counsel inquiry, inquiry, he is not a neutral observer and is not in a position to make objective determinations about the report. Democrats want to call the Attorney General William Barr in to testify about the report. A lot of the 2020 Democratic candidates, everybody says the report needs to be made public. That's going to be the rallying cry that you hear for the majority of the next week. But in the meantime... You know, one of the big questions, will Democrats continue their investigations? It seems so on the face of it. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer say that the American people have the right to know and they need the full report so that they can continue their independent work. So it does seem like investigations will continue, but they got to tread carefully. You know, it's a big win for the president right now. And a lot of his supporters, some in the media, his detractors politically have egg on their face for making this such a rallying cry for so long. But the battle moves on now to make the full report public. But in the meantime, from the letter that Attorney General William Barr sent to Congress, which is a summary from the special counsel Robert Mueller investigation, the president did not collude with Russia. And he's also not guilty of obstruction of justice. The way they do that is they kind of start with plant material in petri dishes and they inject the gene editing enzymes and then they grow those up, they douse them with hormones while they're in these petri dishes. Joining us now is Megan Molteni, science reporter at Wired. You have all heard about genetically modified 
foods, but now we're getting the first gene edited food. It's being served now in a few restaurants, although I'm not sure if we know exactly which restaurant it is at this point. But tell us a little bit about this, Megan, uh, just this whole new crop of foods we might be getting that are gene edited instead of modified. If you kind of look at all of the oil that's used for cooking and baking in this country, about 80% of it comes from soybeans. But in their natural state, soybeans have this problem. They've got high concentrations of this fatty acid called linoleic acid, and that makes the oil spoil pretty quickly. So to make it last longer, food scientists started doing this thing called hydrogenation, that basically it's a chemical process to convert vegetable oils into like solid fats, kind of like margarine. But this process also created trans fat, and that's, you know, known to increase levels of heart-harming cholesterol. So a couple of years ago, the U.S. banned artificial trans fats from the food supply, and that went to effect last summer. And so traditional plant breeders have been trying to find a way to grow soybeans that don't have this fat profile. And Kellex, which is a company based in Minnesota, is tackling the same problem with gene editing. And earlier this month, their first product, which is something called a high oleic soybean oil, hit the market. They said they have their first client, which is a a restaurant with multiple locations in the Midwest. Although, as you said, they're being kind of secretive about where exactly that product is being rolled out. (laughs) I'm sure they don't want to scare off people that might be wary of something like this. So that's why we don't get the name of the restaurant. This company, Calix, is also working on wheats that have more fiber and less gluten. I'm sure that would be happy news to a lot of people. They're also working on potatoes that can safely be put in cold storage without accumulating sugars that catalyze into cancer-causing chemicals when cooked at high temperatures. I didn't know that was a thing, and it immediately made me think maybe I should not eat the frozen french fries I have in the freezer. So there's just some interesting (laughs) things for them to be working on. They're actually one of the first startups doing gene editing, and most people who are in in food crops, and most people are familiar with CRISPR, kind of as the main kind of technology that is used in gene editing. Calix actually uses a slightly older technology called Talons. CRISPR is a little cheaper and easier to work with than Talons, but they function essentially in the same way. They're both enzymes that can be programmed to bind to a specific place in DNA and make a cut. And so Calix uses Talons, which was technology actually co-developed by their um, chief scientific officer back when he was, well, he's still at the University of Minnesota, but when he was just a professor there. And so they basically use Talons to disable a few genes that code for enzymes involved in fatty acid synthesis. And that basically allows them to create plants that have more of these oleic acids and less of these linoleic acids. And so what you wind up with is an oil that has kind of a profile, a fatty acid profile similar to olive oil, but it has kind of the flavorless aspect of soy oil that like is favored by food manufacturers because it's a pretty neutral flavor. So they have about 50 employees, this company Calix, and how does the process work? What are they doing day to day to modify these genes specifically and then and then grow them? Because they contracted with 78 farmers in Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, to grow all these soybeans and then have them made into the oil. Yeah, so they have kind of an interesting business model. You know, a lot of people who are familiar with first-generation GMOs think about, you know, Monsanto and Dow DuPont and how they sell farmer seeds and then they sell them herbicides that work with those seeds. Calix is doing something a little bit different. So they, they make these gene-edited plants in their labs. And basically, the way they do that is they kind of start with plant material in Petri dishes and they kind of inject the gene editing enzymes, and then basically they grow those up 
to kind of douse them with hormones while they're in these petri dishes to grow little shoots and roots and stems. And then they grow them in kind of a sterile nursery until they're big enough that they can take a little punch out of the leaf. And then they analyze that to make sure that the edit has been made. And if they see that the edit has been made, they move it into uh, a greenhouse and they kind of grow them up. And then they'll do field trials and they'll cross them with other breeds of soybean that are more adept at being in the wild environment of the outdoors outside of a lab. And what they'll do is when they can come to it, when they finally wind up with a plant that, you know, has the edits they want and it grows well out in the field, then they'll start growing up those plants to make seeds. So they sell those seeds to farmers. And then when they uh, make that sale, they already have a deal with those farmers to buy back the beans at the end of the season for a a known price. So the farmers know what they're getting and it kind of de-risks it for them a little bit because it's a pretty new thing. Then Calyx pays to have the beans crushed at a processor and then they get the oil back and then they go out and try to shop that oil around. The USDA obviously has approved GMO labeling requirements. This particular soybean oil is not subjected to that because it's not necessarily genetically modified. It's because of the process. It's gene edited. It's just slightly different enough where they don't have to put those labels on it. So about a year ago, the USDA concluded that most gene edited foods would not require regulation. From the agency's point of view, gene editing is basically just a much faster form of breeding because you're not moving genes around from bacteria or viruses as traditional first-generation GMOs did. And so because in USDA's opinion, you're kind of making a simple deletion or doing something that could theoretically happen spontaneously in nature, scientists are just speeding that process along with the use of these molecular scissors that that they don't have to be regulated. It's kind of a big deal because what it's essentially doing is shaving years and tens of millions of dollars off the cost of developing these designer plants. So it's kind of enabling these smaller startups like Calyx to enter the market, which allows these specialty crops, even if not a lot of people buy them or grow them, all of a sudden they become worth developing. Yeah. Megan Multaney, science reporter at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Yep. Thank you very much for having me. Ultimately, what life insurers want to do is sell a lot of policies. And so they want to have algorithms that can quickly and cheaply scan a lot of different consumers at the same time. Joining us now is Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. We're in a weird spot right now with how we are with our social media and our online lives and our real lives. You know, before we wanted to put everything online and now, whether it be pictures or or our own thoughts, but now increasingly... We're being told, don't put anything online. Uh, We want to protect our data. We're being slammed for things you might have said years ago. And now this also applies to pictures and things like that. Don't really post any risky or adventurous behavior because it could make your insurance cost more. What do we know about this, Ellen? Well, in January, New York became the first state to offer guidance for how life insurers are allowed to use algorithms that comb through social media. Many eyes are on New York because it is such a big insurance market and other states are expected to follow some of this guidance that New York had sent. And what that did was set off this expectation that combing through your social media posts ultimately can play a role in setting your life insurance premiums. And industry analysts are really saying that this could be the next, in the next few years, this is the next big thing, not even for life insurance, but even your car insurance, all sorts of insurance policies that you might be wanting to get. 
that your social media might be an increasing piece of that pie? Yes, our understanding right now is that it's truly just a matter of time. The main issue with why this isn't already widespread is really because the technology doesn't yet make this a cost-effective and scalable way to really understand consumers. Plus, there are companies out there that still aren't yet sure if your social media behavior will necessarily give an insurance company a better understanding of your risk profile than the methods that they currently have. But once the technology does make this more cost-effective, does allow them to get a fast, deep understanding of consumers, then it will happen. So it's more just a matter of time and just when, not if. I have a friend who's a private eye, and he's constantly getting contracted by insurers to investigate people. Obviously, they want to make sure the claims aren't fraudulent. That's one of the first things they do is go on your social media and just see if the stories add up there. And then after that, if it warrants more investigation, then that's what they do. So, I mean, for anybody that's trying to do something like that, you know, stay off of Facebook and Instagram at that point. Yes. And obviously, taking that method is not a scalable thing. I mean, ultimately, what life insurers want to do is sell a lot of policies. And so they want to have algorithms that can quickly and cheaply scan a lot of different consumers at the same time. And so right now, doing it one by one is not a realistic and effective way of understanding a lot of consumers. And of course, there are those odd instances where they might hire an actual PI <laughs> right. to get an understanding of someone. But again, once the technology comes up with this, it's it's happening, according to people who studied these issues. Let's talk about some of this risky behavior. I went to Costa Rica a couple years ago on a vacation, and we did a whitewater rafting trip. It was a ton of fun. One of the first things I did when I got back was post it to social media because it was a great picture. I mean, are these the kind of risky behaviors or what are we talking about? Because yeah. Even in the article, you shouldn't be posting yourself drinking or smoking too much. Right. Right. I spoke with data researchers who said that really it's all fair game. So if you are consistently posting photos of yourself smoking, rock climbing, riding a motorcycle without a helmet, drinking in post after post after post, that could raise questions and potentially cost you money down the line. There's a a note you have in here about trading data for perks. There's a lot of uh, places that'll say, hey, you know, tell us this time you reached a health milestone or an exercising goal. Give us details about your sleep, things like that. And they'll give you, I don't know, a gift card, something like that. These Uh, are examples of how this is already in play. This is already happening. So right now, there are consumers who are volunteering this personal data about themselves to insurance companies with the hope of getting a better rate. You see it with safe driving. There are ways that drivers willingly say, yes, please monitor how fast I hit the brakes. I'm a safe driver. I want to cut a deal on my car insurance. That's already in play. So is consumers volunteering their personal fitness data, how many steps they walk in a day, for example, to hopefully get a better deal that way as well. There are, of course, people out there who say, hey, I already am a good driver. I am a healthy person. I want to get a deal on that. Although there are a lot of privacy experts who say not so fast. There's not a lot known about how widely this data can be used. Yet. (laughs) Ellen Byron, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.